Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is June the 6th, 2017, and this is episode 2021 of the Survival Podcast. We've made it all the way to 2021. It's a Monday, so this is a listener feedback show. This is where you send emails to jack at the survivalpodcast.com, jack at the survivalpodcast.com, and in the email subject line, you put the following TSPC, all capital letters like the reward. TSPC stands for the Survival Podcast. And then put anything you want after that. It will just make sure that I dig it out of spam if it goes to spam, and a lot of stuff still goes to spam, even though years and years of me uh, making many of you guys trusted email addresses. And uh, send me your question, your comment, a link to a story or a video, whatever it is, to tell me a little bit about why you're sending it to me. But if you're asking me a question, I really ask that you ask your question in one sentence. And they give me your details. Trust me, everything will go better that way. You'll be more likely to get through screening. I have a big lineup for us today. I have a few examples showing why healthcare is so expensive from somebody in the business, so to speak, saying, here, look, this is the stuff we have to deal with. Um, thoughts on manufacturing homes, including the good, the bad, and the ugly. More on macular degeneration and what you can do about it. What to do, if anything, no, I'm sorry, um, dealing with stray cats or neighbor cats using your property as a litter box. I have a real simple solution to that one. Feedback on challenging teachers and when and when not to do it. I'm talking about when your kids come home and say, teacher said I was wrong about this. Uh, somebody talked about challenging a teacher. I think she was dead on when she did, but I also think that there's a little temperance that needs to go there, and I'll talk about that as well. Uh, I got a question on choosing between the Weber Kettle, a sidebox smoker, and the Bradley smoker for your first foray into smoking. Um, the sharing economy gets into the physical goods world. You wonder how that, like, it's a, a library of things type approach. Uh, geese crap at people on Disney, and a hazmat team is called in. Yeah. We'll just talk a little bit about how screwed we are as a society when, when that's the way things go. And gardening, uh, where there have been railroad ties in the past. Any considerations for soil remediation for your health and the good of your garden? We'll talk about all of that and more in just a bit. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey, business owners, would you like the ability to reach more than 100,000 TSP community members for as little as $5 a year? If so, consider advertising your business in the TSP Business Directory. A listing in our directory shows your support of the community and a commitment to value-for-value value exchange with other members. To find something or to be found, just check out the directory at tspbiz.com. That's tspbiz.com to learn more. Hey, folks, if silver and gold are not part of your current economic preparedness plan, they should be. In fact, for over eight years, I have recommended that listeners keep 5 to 10% of their wealth in precious metals as a wealth assurance program. And JM Bullion is my personal choice for all my precious metal purchases. They offer some of the best pricing in the industry and free shipping on top of it. Check out jambullion.com to learn more. And with that knocked out, let's go ahead and take a look at the year that was the episode. The year is the year four, because it's no longer the year that was the episode. We're just taking a journey through history each episode. Today we're at the year 4 AD, and we have a very short segment today from Southpaw Ben. Here's what he says. 
Nicholas writes History of the World. This year, Nicholas of Damascus uh, is believed to have finished his 144 book of universal history, parts of which still remain today, as well as references to 14 or 15 of these, this 144 book set by other authors. My take by Southpaw Bend. I find it is amazing how many books and writings have managed to make it the 2,000 years in good enough shape to still be readable today. It is so amazing to see that even without copyrights, as we know them today, Nicholas's works were still given credit by other authors. Um, yeah, I'll tell you, one of the reasons that that happened isn't just that the free market works, and it does, that when things were accepted as valid, you would, of course, cite them because it lended validity to what you were citing. So if, if I came out and said, you know, such and such happened in the year 150 B.C., and I was writing, let's say, in the year 150 A.D., uh, being able to go back and cite Nicholas of Damascus as the source of that information would lead credibility to what I was writing and whatever I was extrapolating from it. It also just makes me think about the fact, like, okay, so what kind of dedication did it take in the year four? Or, you know, the years leading up to the year four, because this probably took the guy, you know, a decade or more. I don't know how long it took for him to compile this 144 book of universal history at the time of the year four. What was, what was it like to be a historian this long ago when you didn't just pull up the internet or whip out the Encyclopedia Britannica back in the day or what have you, when there was no, I guess, see, the thing is, there were libraries. There were libraries. At the time, and there were research facilities, and there were chronologies of this information, but it was all, well, it was all handwritten. We're a long way from the Gutenberg printing press, aren't we? And the dedication it took to compile these records so that knowledge wouldn't be lost, it's not just so much interesting in itself. To me, it shows how spoiled we are in our world today. You realize that everything that man knows and all the knowledge gained by man and all the knowledge postulated by man, like white papers, like would this work, even if it's not tried, all of that information is, unless some sort of catechism destroys the electrical grid and, and the internet, is now being preserved for all humanity. And that says a lot about the exponential leaps in technology that we'll experience in the next 10, 20, 30, 100, 300 years. Um, our world is is going to change very, very rapidly, even compared to how it's changed in the past, simply due to the accumulation of knowledge and the resiliency of knowledge not being lost because somebody burned down one building that had the only copy of a book that preserved a specific set of knowledge. Just my thoughts on that. I want to remind you guys once again about the Member Support Brigade, or MSB. That's the main way that you can help support the show and the work that we do here at the Survival Podcast. When I put that program together almost eight years ago now, I wanted to always make sure that members got a return of their investment. I wanted to make sure that whatever they paid me, they got back more than that, because I think that's just the smart way to do business. So I'd like to remind you about just two of the benefits you get as an MSB member today that give you basically a 100% return on your investment from day one. First, you get a, a free lifetime discount membership to Safe Castle Royal. Vikram Tala sells that every day for $49. Bucks. 
Western Botanicals gives you their premium membership discount for one year for free. That would cost you 50 bucks. That's $99 return on just two discount membership programs that I get you as a supporting member of the MSB. So consider joining today to learn about all the other great benefits. Drop by the survivalpodcast.com, click on members, and to see all the ways you can sign up, scroll to the bottom of the page. So with that, let's go ahead and get right into uh, the, uh, the main subject today, of course, is your feedback. Uh, the first one I have today comes from uh, Randy. And uh, Randy says uh, he has several comments for us on health insurance from his perspective as a patient and in his professional roles as a paramedic responsible for IT and logistics in his emergency management uh, systems agency. So this is you know straight from the horse's mouth, so to speak. And it's it's just, I guarantee you that if I put out a call for this for people in the the health industry that we could do like. Hours upon hours upon hours on waste, things being overcharged, and it all being driven by greed. Because he's going to say, well, it's regulations. Well, where do the regulations come from? Before I read this, I want, I want you to understand, where do regulations in this country come from? We've been led to believe that our, our fearless leaders that go to Washington, D.C. to serve us think, well, we need these regulations to protect and help people. And, and to some degree, that may have been true at times, but that's not how regulations work. I used to work in what I would call a private regulation environment. Okay, When I was in sales for, let's say, Fluke Networks would be one example. We had people in our company that were part of standards committees. So this was non-governmental standards. right? This is private industry standards. But there was only one reason that, that, that all of the companies collaborated to write standards that then would get hard-written into things like specifications for installations of techn technological systems. And that was so that you would get roped into the, the, the companies that actually had people on the standards committees. So if we pushed you out and, and we spec'd something in a certain way and said it had to meet a certain standard, then if you didn't have that standard, you, you were off the board. So it was about greed. It was about making sure that we got business. That's why we wrote the standards. We didn't write the standards to protect the industry. That was the marketing. No, we wrote the standards to get the business. And we would take it a step further. Working through our manufacturer's representative firms and consultancies, we would then take those standards and add to them and put specific features, for instance, with Fluke that only the Fluke tester could do. So that when you won the job, you had to test it with a Fluke tester, even if it didn't say Fluke tester by name. And so why did we do that? Because we believe we had the best testers? Sure, sure we did. We wanted to make sure that that new job created 10 new orders. And that's how regulations in America work today. The regulations in the pharmaceutical industry are written not by our fearless non-leaders, right? Our fearless idiots, our, our, our fearful idiots, I should call them, our Congress clowns. No, they're written by lobbyist firms. And who, does, who employs the lobbyist firms? Do citizens employ lobby firms and say, please make things better for us. No, corporations employ lobbying firms who write the legislation and hand it to our officials. Keep that in mind as I read this, because it's really important. Anyway, Randy says, I have several comments on health insurance from my perspective as a patient and my professional role as a paramedic. First, uh, as a patient, I am diabetic and I take two forms of insulin. At my last insulin refill, my pharmacy claims to have saved me $1,600 Of that, about $1,500 was insulin. I point this out because prior to having insurance, 
I was able to purchase insulin, which worked, though not as well as what I have now, for about $40 a month without insurance. And at Walmart, it was over-the-counter with no prescription required. A friend of mine needs EpiPens for their toddler. You know the story with EpiPens. Hypothetically, a rogue medic could have given them a couple $2 vials of Epi, some needles and syringes, and some instructions, and saved them a lot of money. And, of course, I don't know of any such rogue medic. I think I know who that is. Anyway, second as a provider. Regulation drives us. This year, we were purchasing three new ambulances. Because of regulation, we were required to replace the tried-and-true antlers with more secure stretcher mounting system. The difference? About $8,000. We are now required to use straps that meet new federal standards, about $800 for a set of seat belts on the stretcher. Um, the antlers have been used since civilian ambulances were invented. There was no problem, but we fixed it anyway. Now, I'm going to stop there a second. Who do you think wrote that regulation? Who, I, I want you to really think about this. So, well, it, it makes people that are in a stretcher, more they weren't going anywhere. People weren't flying out the back of ambulances. Who wrote this regulation? The company that makes the freaking new product. Do you get this? Is neo fascism? A company comes up with a product. They use their lobbyists to spec the product at the federal level and say that it must be used. And then, gee, they have great sales. Ah, oh, okay. We are also required to carry certain drugs, even though our ambulances are staffed with paramedics trained in its use. And carry ephedrine, one in 1,000 on glass vials, which cost about $2 a vial. The same drug and concentration as in the EpiPen. We are required by state regulation to carry the $400 EpiPen. And if we should use that EpiPen on a Medicare patient, we will only be paid a fixed amount plus mileage for transport on our ALS medical transport average time of $1,000 in payments. Narcon, the anti-narcotic drug that the media is so excited about, costs us $43 a dose. In my experiences, two to three doses are required in a typical overdose. By the way, law enforcement receives grant money to purchase Narcon, but we can't. But we don't, okay? The Physio Control Life Pack 1500 patient monitor and defibrillator, which is the model with the features required by state regulation, costs about $30,000, and we're required to maintain a maintenance contract on each unit, another $2,500 a year. One drug we carry to revive diabetics costs just under $400 a dose, linked to glucagon. If we start an IV on someone, the IV catheter, not including all other supplies, just part of that goes in your arm, is $3.50 or more each. We are required to carry a total minimum of 24 in different sizes. We are required to respond to and transport if requested anybody, regardless of their medical need or ability to pay. Yes, if you have an ingrown toenail that abscessed a week ago and you want to go to the ER at 4 in the morning, we have to take you. Many people in some 911 systems are using Uber instead of EMS and non-critical patients. Google Uber instead of ambulance for many articles. Then people without insurance take a ride in our ambulance and get the unadjusted, non-negotiated rate and faint. This is the key, the unadjusted non-negotiated rate. When we transport a critical patient, the original bill may be two to $5,000. But if you're a Blue Cross subscriber, uh, the Blue Cross agreement is to pay a certain amount. If we accept that payment, it is on the condition that the remainder of the subscriber bill is forgiven. Medicare pays 80% of what they believe is reasonable, usually 20 to 40% of our original bill. Do I believe the insurance company paid $1,500 for $40 worth of insulin? Not on your life. But when I order supplies from my agency, I don't get a discount. Where does the money go? 
politicians writing the regulations, lobbyists, I can tell you it doesn't go to the medics in the street. Without completely chasing another rabbit, let's consider health care for a moment. Medicare is funded by the federal government and pays 80% of certain costs. It does not cover drugs. So the Medicare subscriber has to purchase a drug plan. The drug plan is discounted. How federal subsidies. Then there are state Medicaid systems. Who funds those? The federal government. I'm not supporting national health care, but if the Fed is funding all these different systems, why not combine them and eliminate the cost of all those layers of bureaucratic BS? I know. Shut up, take your pill, and stop thinking. Oh, in case you're wondering, when you see a new fully equipped advanced life support ambulance running down the road, you're looking at $400,000 in vehicle equipment and supplies. Uh, signed, Sleepy Medic. Okay. Uh, well, why don't we just federalize the whole thing and do it anyway? Well, because it'll just get worse. All of Everything you just said will just get worse. See, the problem isn't not enough regulation. It's too much regulation. And, again, where does the money go? Like, does it go to politicians? Sort of. No, where it really goes, where the money really goes, is into the pockets of the companies that author the regulations and legislation. We, we, have, we have so far passed... The point where legislation was used to protect people and ensure that certain needs were met. We have now gone to it. It is a means to an end of profitability. I'm telling you, you if you don't believe that, you're not paying attention. There's been almost no regulations or laws passed in the past 20 years that weren't written by companies within the industry that they proposed to regulate. If it was written for the oil industry, Exxon lobbyists penned some of the, actually, Exxon lawyers wrote the regulations, handed it to Exxon lobbyists who put it in the hands of our politicians, and then the big dog and pony show starts about, oh, they're shutting down the oil industry. Bullshit. Bullshit. Every damn thing that goes through our government now and comes out the other end as a law starts in the hands of the, of the actual industry it purports to regulate. And that doesn't make sense because you're like, why would they want more regulations? Well, when the regulations say you have to buy the shit that they make and they're the only people that make it and you don't have to cut your price at all and you know you're going to get a given set of orders, that's a pretty nice regulation to have, isn't it? It also stifles competition because if somebody comes up with a product that works better for less but doesn't meet the regulation, which basically says go buy from these people, right, that have these five independent standards that they created, four of them, okay, then your, your competitive product can't find its way into that niche. So instead of a $400 EpiPen, we'd use a $2 vial that anybody that's, run, that's on an ambulance as a paramedic can take a measured dose out of and give somebody a shot of. But no. But no. No, we're going to have, and we have both. It's there. They already have it. They don't need an EpiPen. But the people behind EpiPen made sure they have to have an EpiPen. You want children to die. You're retarded if you think that's what I'm saying. I can't even help you. This is what I'm saying. We do not have a health insurance problem in this country. We have a health care cost problem, and you can't fix one by fooling around with the other. You can't do it. There is no way to make health insurance fix this problem. This is extortion of the American people. This is the fabrication of a new drug every week with a slick marketing campaign behind it that does nothing really more than something that's already on the market that's become a generic and is now selling for 10 bucks and selling it for $500, and then having some chick with big knockers go out and flirt with a doctor so he writes prescriptions for it. 
That's your problem. And if you don't understand that, there's no way you're ever going to come to grips with the reality. This is not about insurance. Insurance is the cash cow. Insurance is the Goldman Sachs in the monetary creation scheme. That's all insurance is now. Okay? When the government wants to make new money, they print bonds, they sell bonds, they t those bonds create new money, it's lent into existence. Everybody that's studied monetary creation understands this. There's no need to run it through a third party like the Goldman Sachs, but they do because it's nepotism and it makes everything nice and it parcels out a lot more money and you can skim with it. That's the insurance companies of the world today. The government, they, they wrote Obamacare and now they say it sucks. But they don't really care. All they're doing is leaving the exchange. They're still making money hand over fist. What they're saying is, I don't have to stay in this exchange. They cost me money. I'll just go into the non-exchange. Let you guys worry about it. I'm going to make my money. And thanks to you guys who did what I asked you to do, I have unlimited customers because people are required to buy it. No matter how much I charge, people have to buy it. No matter how much I screw people over, people have to buy it. And I'm not going to make a huge margin. But we're just running the money through my, my entity, so I know how much I'm going to make every year, and I can just start making a little bit more by providing less services in certain areas that I don't want to anymore. Because, gee, you, you set the exchanges up at our behest, and then we said we would do it. But you, you notice how in that regulation there's nothing that required us to remain in the exchanges? Because we wrote the laws. The corporations are writing the laws. You live in an oligarchy. Please grasp onto that. That's part of why I'm so excited about cryptocurrencies and things like that. It's one way that you can actually begin to wrest control back from the powers that be. It's not enough in of itself, but it's going to change the world. It's going to change the world, and you will see Dr. Uber, okay? You will see a doctor's Uber where you need health treatment, and there's 20 doctors bidding to be the doctor that you go see, probably at their house. Well, they can't do it because regularly, oh, whatever. I'm telling you, there's a point where when the market fails bad enough, the solutions that are implemented are such that people value them so much government can't interfere. People go into revolt. I'm telling you, you'll get to a point where they'll start pulling Congress clowns out of their seats into the streets of D.C. and hanging them from, from freaking monuments. That's, that's, and they know that. It'll never happen because they know they can only push shit so far. And they'll push it as far as they can, but they're, they're losing control right now. They don't know they're losing control, but they're losing control. The market is beginning to market in ways that it's never marketed before. And remember that always. The market's going to market. You can't stop it. All right, next up I have a question here from Ruben. Ruben says, I'm looking to buy a house soon. Came across a manufactured double wide on one plus fantastic acres with a garage. It needs a ton of work, but would likely be a very good investment. I've never seen, I've never lived in something like this. There's no basement, just dirt underneath with a skirt. Potential water issues, among many other things, it needs a lot of work. What are your thoughts on these types of homes and on other options uh, for potential for a new build? Thanks, Ruben. Okay, so when you say water problems and lots of work and mobile home all in the same breath, you make Jack very nervous, okay? I believe, and one of the things you didn't tell me is where you live, where this is, okay? Now, if this is in a place with very low... Tornado risk, I, I, I don't have a huge problem with mobile homes. In, but this one may not qualify. Okay, it's a qualifying statement. But what I mean is that if that's, if, if that's the case, if you're in upstate New York, 
Um, and you're not, you know, once a week looking at a Torcon of six or seven or nine, like we might be here some years, and you're not worried about having your home blown into a billion bits by a swirling cloud of death. I mean, that's my biggest concern, my first primary concern with manufactured housing. Because of the way they're manufactured, because they're not on a foundation, there is a propensity for them when they're hit the right way by a tornado to just explode. And everything else, they seem to handle just fine. Okay? Uh, next, when you say water issues, I don't know what you mean. But that's not good. If you have a, 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 a house sitting on center blocks, which is usually how they do a mobile home, they put center blocks down and then they put the house on top of them, it's actually very sturdy, it's not going anywhere. You'd look at it if you didn't know better and think, man, just a good breeze and nothing will fall over. Nope. They, but if you have water erosion problems underneath it, where's the water coming from? Is it part of the plumbing system leaking? Um, or is it some sort of natural thing and they put it in the wrong place and it's going to need to be moved? Right? Or do you mean water issues because there's a lot of wetness inside the, the house and it's, it's got mold? If that's the case, it needs to be burned. There's no saving. If it's got mold into the walls of a mobile home, it's just probably not worth fixing and you don't need to be buying it. Uh, it, it, is, it is probably beyond repair. Uh, mobile homes that have not been taken care of are more work to rehab than site-built homes that have not been taken care of usually. Okay? I lived in a mobile home in Arkansas. Uh, I liked it. In many ways, I liked it as a house better than the house we have today, and the house we have today is a much nicer house the way many people would look at it. Uh, it was a great open floor plan. It had a huge living room, had a huge kitchen. It had lots of cabinets and lots of workspace. Uh, we put wood flooring in, high-end carpeting in, and tile in where we wanted it, and it looked really nice. Uh, we painted the walls so they looked like real walls. We painted the trim Uh, we made it look so nice that people would come inside and, you know, they walked in. It's clearly a double-wide, you know, mobile home. And they'd be in the house for about 10 minutes and they'd look around and go, wait, 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 this is, a, is this a mobile home or is this a rent? They, they, they would, like, forget what it was. And, and that's great. But when we bought it, it was almost brand new. It was probably five years old. And the guy that had it, he didn't do anything really great with it, but he didn't do anything to screw it up and he didn't mess anything up and nothing had really gone downhill with it. Mobile homes tend to, over time, depreciate in value, which is the exact opposite of what you want out of real property, which is to appreciate in value, um, unless they are really well done and really well maintained. And one of the things you'll want to know is when this gets appraised for somebody to buy it, will it appraise as real property? Most of the time, a mobile home on land will appraise as real property. Sometimes they won't. It depends to do with how they're set up and things like that. So all of that stuff that has to be taken into consideration. Um, my personal recommendation is that in most instances, if you have a mobile home that needs a lot of work, you need to be buying the land and seeing this dwelling that's there for temporary use as a bonus, and it probably needs to go away. Again, there's very brief emails. So I don't know what you mean by needs a lot of work. The walls look like shit. They need to be stripped down and painted. Uh, could use new carpeting. Uh, some of the cabinetry looks like crap, and you might want to redo that, or you might want to paint them. Uh, you know, things like that. Okay, fine. Structural, again, water damage. Uh, if the place stinks, 
animal feces embedded in things, uh, leaking plumbing fixtures that have leaked for a long time and caused a lot of damage. I mean, all of that stuff, when you get into mobile homes, because they're not as resilient as site-built homes, scares me. So be careful with it. Um, I really worried a lot when we had severe weather in Arkansas being in that house. It was the only thing that I didn't like about it, like, you know, not having a tornado shelter. So if you're going to live in a mobile home where there's a high prevalence of tornadoes, where it's, you know, it's, it's, you own the land and that's not like a trailer park or whatever, uh, I, I would really recommend spending, you know, four to seven thousand dollars to have a properly installed tornado shelter put in. And properly installed is very important. I've seen instances where people have drowned in improperly installed tornado shelters. Where there was no, no, they didn't get hit by a tornado. They would have been better off if they would have sat on the roof in the rain and got some, hit in the face with some hail because they'd still be alive. And they died in an improperly. So if you, like if you have some bubble that says, well, I'll just do it with my backhoe. <laughs> no. No, they, they, it's a very critical thing that tornado shelters be in, installed properly. And I would, if I was going to buy a mobile home in the future, in any instance in tornado country, I would price the cost into the initial price of the house and just say, if it's not there and I'm going to put it in, this is, I'm going to, I'd get a bid, I'd know what it's going to cost, and I'd be willing to make that concession. Because what they say is, well, if you're in a mobile home and a tornado comes, get out and go lie in a low-lying ditch. Uh, okay. I, I understand what you're saying, but, uh, it, it, it doesn't really sound like it's that, like, it's better because you won't be in an exploding house and hit with a two by four through the spleen, and you'll be less likely. But if that tornado rolls right over top of you and you're in a ditch, you're getting sucked up into it like Dorothy, and you're coming out the other end of it like, well, dead. So, it's not exactly a great plan. It really isn't. So, I, I would want to have a place to go. I would be really leery of older ones. If you choose the route of buying a new one or find one in really great shape, then you're going to have to make a plan to do maintenance to it, to do upkeep to it, and to do improvements in it, and that's the only way that you'll protect your investment. For instance, our place in Arkansas, we bought with five acres for $69,000. We sold it for almost $90,000. We maybe had $10,000 of, of, of true cost into it, a lot of sweat equity. So we, we made 20 grand. You don't usually do that on a mobile home. But if you're smart about it, you can. And then you go back to the way I talk about marketing houses if you want to sell it. Be careful there. I'm not saying don't do it. I am saying be careful because it's one of those things that can really burn you in the ass if you're not careful. Um, next, I have uh, an email here from Kevin. On macular degeneration, he just wanted to add to the discussion we had with uh, Gary Collins and Doc Bones about two weeks ago with um, you know preventing and dealing with the concept of macular degeneration. Here's what he says. Jack, I wanted to offer an additional suggestion after hearing the feedback on macular degeneration that Doc Bones and Gary Collins gave last week. Caveat, I am not a medical doctor, and this does not constitute medical advice. There are two molecules in your, bot your body absorbs and transfers into your serum and then selectively deposits into your macula. These are lutein and zeaxanthin. Z zeaxanthin. Lutein and zeaxanthin are class compounds, a class of compound called xanophils. 
uh, keratins such as these off the often supplemented beta carotene and xenophilosis make a larger class of molecules called keratinoids, which are organic pigments. Lutein and zeanothin, along with intermediate compound called mesozeanothin, which your body produces in order to convert lutein and zeanothin and vice versa, form a deposit in your macula called macular pigment. Macular pigment is associated with macular degeneration for two reasons. First, it acts as a selective filter for blue and violet light in the visible spectrum. This causes the most damage to your phytoreceptors. Second, it's a potent antioxidant, which is important because your retina is the most metabolically active tissue in your body and consumes the most oxygen for its mass. After tobacco use and lifestyle disease, the amount of macular pigment that you have is the strongest modifiable predictor of your risk of macular degeneration. The best dietary sources of lutein and zeanothin is kale, followed by spinach, and then a long list of dark, leafy, green life leafy vegetables. There is also a bit in corn and egg yolk. Lutein and zeanothin are fat-soluble, so your body is better able to absorb them if you consume these foods at the same time with some oil or other fat. So leafy greens and fat. What kind of diet would promote that? I'm just... Just saying. Anyway, there are a lot of nutritional supplements on the market that advertise that they have lutein and zeanothin or both, and most of them don't contain decent quantity, quantities of either. If you're interested in supplementing lutein or zeanothin, be aware of supplements touting their doses in micrograms instead of milligrams. The best bang for your buck I've found so far in lutein and zeanothin supplements is, surprisingly, the Maker's Mark brand from Sam's Club, which has 20 um, milligrams of lutein and 5 milligrams of zeanothin per pill. This is comparable to a little more than a, cook, a cooked cup of kale per pill, You can only absorb so much lutein and zeanothin, but the toxicity research I found that's in, in, insanely high doses given to rats just turned their poop yellow. Okay, My graduate research is focused primarily on how macular pigment levels correlate to performance on a variety of vision tests, mostly related to intense light. Lutein and zeanothin supplements often help people who are suffering from vision issues related to glare and photo discomfort. You should talk to a medical professional before starting these supplements and read the label before buying them. Thank you for uh, all that you do, Jack. Um, so I think this is uh, a pretty good piece of advice here and pretty spot on. Pretty spot on. And I, I mean, it is a very scientific response. So those would be the things that if you have a concern about macular degeneration, a family history of it, or you are high on certain um, risk factors like tobacco use, um, you might really want to consider these as a supplement. Note that I am not a doctor either, and what I'm saying does not constitute medical advice, but you should stop smoking, okay? Um, if you want to use smoke a cigar once a month or something like that or whatever, yeah, but you, you guys that are smoking like two packs of cigarettes a day, you're killing yourself, and you stink, all right? And you can get pissed at me for that, but you know I'm being honest with you. I really am, um, and I don't think the vaping is a good thing either, but you stink less, and it's less bad, even though it's really bad, okay? Just just saying. Um, I don't want anybody to put pass a law that says you can't smoke and stink all you want, but, um, man, you're killing yourself, and you don't have to. It sucks to quit, but it only sucks for a little while, and it doesn't suck anymore, And I think that one of the biggest things you guys that are smoking can do to make yourself quit is this. Just sit down and figure out how much money you spend a year on cigarettes. And then multiply it by 10 years. 
and ask yourself, since you've probably been smoking more than 10 years, what would you do if you had that money now? And if somebody gave you that much money now, would you quit smoking? And it's just like the debt question, guys, okay? You know, when people say, well, I owe $3,000 on this credit card. I have plenty of money in the bank. I could write a check and pay it off, but I don't know if I should. Well, if you didn't owe the money, uh, would you borrow it and start making payments on it from the money that you have in the bank? Well, no. Okay, and then it's the same thing, so pay off the debt, right? It really is. It's the same difference. Well, if you would look at 10 years' worth of spending on cigarettes and say to yourself, self, if somebody came to me now and said, if you will quit smoking, I will write you a check for this amount and give this money to you free and clear, then 10 years from now, that's what you'll have if you quit today. That's how it works. Just one way to look at it. I care about your health, guys. Please stop killing yourselves. And, uh, man, when you talk to somebody who smoked for 20 or 30 years, you just hear it in their voice. You can hear them on the phone and go, this person's a smoker. Think about it. Again, I'm not putting you down. I'm just pointing it out. Let's take another one. So... This one comes from Nick. He says, thanks for what you do, Jack. I've become a listener since I was referred to TSP a couple months ago. Question, I've installed a mini permaculture area in my front yard. It has become a haven for stray cats to relieve themselves. What can I do to stop this? Background, I live south of Pittsburgh in a coal town. We're plagued by stray cats. And as usual, the local government doesn't do anything. Go figure. Thanks. Well, Nick, I'm not really sure I'd want the government to do anything about the stray cats because they would probably just kill them. And uh, I think there's better solutions. And usually, sooner or later, when this is a problem, uh, private you know companies that do cat rescue and things like that end up using donated money to do a much better job than government ever could fixing the problem, including uh, catch, spay, and release uh, policies because nobody wants the damn things. But if you prevent them, prevent them from reproducing, they are a self-managing problem. This does not solve your problem, though. And all we have to do is look at the problem from a perspective of why it's a problem. And then we can find out what a solution is. So, why it's a problem. Well, you have a mini permaculture area. That sounds to me like code for, I did some really cool plants and mulching, and I made soil really soft and fluffy and wonderful so that stuff will grow in it. So, a cat is walking around, patrolling an area, looking for a mouse to eat, whatever, trying to stay alive. And the ground is relatively hard everywhere. And it, it is hardwired to bury its waste. And it finds this pile of this fluffy stuff, and it paws it, and it feels nice. And it digs a little bit, and it gets through the fluffy stuff, and it gets down to the brown stuff underneath and says, ooh, that's dirt, and it digs much easier than any place else. And it says, hey, I had nature's calling. So it takes a, drops a pot, and it buries it, and it went very, very easily for that cat. It didn't have to get gravel or sticks or twigs embedded in its paws. It didn't have to work really hard to do a function that it has to do. It has to go to the bathroom, like all living creatures. It has to eliminate its waste. And again, biologically, it is hardwired to, to, to dig a hole and bury its waste. It is, it, is an, it is an impossibility for that cat not to act on that action. It would be like asking you to not pull your hand off of a really hot piece of metal. It's, it's that hardwired. So we only have two things that we can do to, to stop the behavior. Because now the behavior has become a pattern. Cats are creatures of patterns and habitats. They run certain paths and, and walkways and hunt certain trails. And they're even you can even time them. I bet you if you watched and you said that gray cat, and you knew what that cat looked like, and he came by around 5 o'clock in the evening, he's going to always come by around 5 o'clock in the evening. They're that hardwired. So either you have to make the area untenable to the cat, 
So if you have a cat that's, 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 that's got this problem in your house, then you've given it a litter box, but it's crapping in a corner of your, your bedroom, and it's always that one spot. You have to ruin the texture there. Take a whole bunch of duct tape and make it two-sided and put it there so when it touches it, it doesn't like it. Spread something around there that, that ruins it. Get rid of the smell and replace it with another smell. Uh, people say mothballs repels them. It doesn't. Cats don't give a damn about a mothball. What it does is it replaces the smell of their waste with another. But see, that doesn't help you, does it? That helps a person with an inside cat with a problem. Okay. So what helps you is then the only other option is for something really bad in that cat's mind to happen every time it goes there. Well, we don't want that to be like the cat being blown up with a claymore mine, right? We're not inhumane, and we don't want to go to jail for terrorism against cats or something like that. So we need something that's horrible to the cat, but it's really benign. So what I've learned with my cats in training them is the number one thing that a cat hates is being sprayed in the face with water. So my number one cat training tool indoors is a little spray bottle, and my number one training tool outdoors is a great big hose with a spray nozzle on it that sprays really hard. And I try to make sure the cat never knows I did it. So when we introduce the cats to the birds, and the smaller bird, you know, the, the younger birds were around. Like the big birds, they never even thought about. They were kittens. These birds were twice their size. They kind of grew up with them. But when the first babies came around, hey, we're going to start stalking a little bit and all. And I'd sneak up behind them with that garden hose, and I would let them have it. You know, it goes near the babies, he gets the hose, and I would drop the hose as soon as I shut it off. And I would just stand there looking around like I didn't have anything to do with that. And the cats got to their, their, their head, when you do this, this happens, and they don't do it anymore. And another thing I would do often is I, there's a sound that cats immediately alert on, and it sounds like another cat, like hissing, like that, that sound, right? And if you do that when a cat's not looking at you, you'll see it jump and jolt. So I would also, like when I sprayed them, I would make that sound. And then that allowed me, when I saw them behaving in a certain way, you're getting more than you asked for here, because I'm going to give you a very I already gave this guy the actual product to do this with. Uh, but this is trying to help more people than just people that have the problem of the cat peeing in the, the sandbox or whatever. So I would make that sound. So now, if I see behavior I don't like, I don't have to run and get the hose if it's not convenient. I just make sure, if they don't see me, I just go... And you'll see them just jump and look around and like, oh crap, it almost happened again. And then just they'll go to do something else. So all you need is someone who will hide in your permaculture area for you with a garden hose. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and every time the cats come, spray them with the hose, and they'll sooner or later determine that that's not a good place to go. That something horrible happens to you every time you go there, you get sprayed with water. Now the problem is that would be expensive, right? That would be really expensive, so automation... To the, uh, to the rescue. There's a product you can get on Amazon. It's about 80 bucks. It's called the Yard Enforcer Sprinkler. It has an infrared sensor on it that senses movement around it. You set it where your problem area is. And Mr. Kitty Cat's like, hey, it's time to go potty. I'm going to go. And it gets soaked with water and it runs away. So it's like, well, that was weird. What the hell was that? So it goes off and does something else that day. But a cat is a creature of pattern and habit. It's going to come back. And it's going to come sneaking on back. And then, <laughs> it happened again. And it'll be two or three times. And this cat will determine at some point 
the very act of going to this place causes this to happen, and I need to find another place to be. And that is the number one way to deal with this problem. Now, on another note, I can understand people not wanting cats crapping in their gardens and things like that. And like a vegetable garden especially, I don't want that, especially something where I'm growing like carrots or something in that nice sandy soil. But if you have a, when you, you say permaculture, if you mean more of a, like, you know, like a perennial system uh, where you have trees and bushes and shrubs and vines and stuff like that, assuming that the cats aren't doing it so much that they're actually causing die-off from excess nutrient, it's not stinking or whatever, it really is just another source of organic matter. It, it's not really that big of a deal. But especially in a small, confined area, You say mini, then you can get, like, I don't worry about my cats doing this on my property. I got three acres, they do it all over the place. Now, if they were going to one place all the time, you could have a buildup, you could have health concern issues, you could have excessive nutrient issues, you could have just physical damage. And that's where I think the art enforcer comes in. There's a lot of different ones. This is the best one that I found. Works really good. And uh, if you want to laugh, uh, just go to YouTube and start searching for videos of cats Uh, with automatic water sprinklers. And you'll see plenty of people that have deployed this solution, and you'll see how effective it is. It's, it's, it's damn effective. Uh, it works really good. Anyway, again, the Yard Enforcer, there's a link in today's show notes. But hopefully the other information will help some of you guys that need to deal with cats that you have on your homestead or in your home by choice as well. This next one is from TXMom, TX Mom, who comments a lot on the blog, puts really great comments out like this one. And it ties back into last week I talked about an incident where a child was asked a question on an exam and put down an answer that was actually the only correct answer, but it wasn't the answer that they were looking for. The answer they were looking for was actually wrong because the test was poorly written. And the question was basically two kids had pizza, and one person ate four-sixths of his pizza, the other kid ate five-sixths of his pizza, and uh, the one that ate four-sixths had more pizza. How is this possible? And it was a definitive statement. It was, you know, Johnny ate more pizza, period. How is this possible? Question mark. That's a definitive statement. The answer was, of course, the kid that ate four or six but ate more total pizza, well, <laughs> he had a bigger pizza. So four sixths of a large is bigger than five sixths of a small. So the kid put that down, the teacher marked it wrong and said, the answer is that's not possible because five sixths is bigger than four sixths. Well, the teacher's wrong. So I had a Jack, Jack Flippy shit moment and, and discussed that and how stupid our education system is becoming and how you're trying to dumb people down with it. Well, here's what Text Mom said in response to that. If your kids are in public school as a parent, you should teach your kids to check their work, check their teacher's grades, and question things they mark wrong which aren't. In the process, some of the teachers may move out of the drone stage. In your opinion, what's going on in this photo? This is a question for the, her, the child, right? And the, the kid says, Mom, I don't know the answer. What does opinion mean? Give your opinion. What do you think? She writes down her opinion. The teacher marks it wrong. I go with her to talk to the teacher. Why is this marked wrong? Because that was not the answer we were looking for. So you mean you are telling my second grader what her opinion should be? Silence. Teacher apologizes and changes the grade. I've never had a parent-child question the answer in our answer key before. Parents don't check, discuss homework with their kids anymore. No one has ever brought that to my attention before. 
Parents have to take an active role in teaching their kids, even if not homeschooling. I completely agree with that. And I'm going to tell you something else. When they say they want parents more involved with their child's education, this is not what the system means. What the system means is they want parents to be enforcers to the will of the teacher. They don't want to be questioned. They don't want what you said right there. And they should get it anyway. If you have a kid in school and you can't homeschool, you should go over every assignment and look at everything that that kid does. And if something's marked wrong, you should make sure that it's actually wrong. Here's what you shouldn't do, though. You shouldn't go and get pissed off at a teacher because your kid got the actual wrong answers. And that happens, too. And I think we need some temperance on that. We need to understand that while government schools suck as a thing... There's many really good people within them in their, in their walls as teachers who are trying to do the best they can for our kids. And we should have some respect for them. And that means that, like, are you just being a nitpicking asshole and trying to get your kid a better grade through bullying the teacher? Because that shit ain't right either. But in this example here, if, if, if the question is, what is your opinion, then there is no wrong answer unless the answer is ridiculous. So if, the, if, if the, the, the picture was a bunch of men building a bridge, right? your opinion could be, well, it's, it's a bunch of men building a bridge. Well, your opinion could also be, it's a bunch of men taking a bridge apart. If it's a picture, not a video, how would you know? It's a bunch of men looking at a bridge that's halfway built. It's a bunch of men looking at a bridge that's being taken apart. It's a bunch of guys talking to each other. See, all of those are reasonable opinions. You may not have grasped what the artist was looking for or the photographer was trying to capture, but those are reasonable opinions. If the picture is a bunch of men building a bridge and the child says, my opinion is that Cookie Monster is eating cookies under the bridge, by the, you know, by the reality of it being opinion, technically you should be able to answer anything you want, but now you're skating the question and you're being obtuse and you're, or you're just not getting it. And that would be wrong. But if there was a specific answer, and that specific answer was very much to a specific point, and it was subject to interpretation, and you've asked me what my opinion is, then no reasonable answer would be wrong. And that's, an that's another flaw in how the test is written, or how the worksheet is written. And we, we need to challenge educators on these things. We absolutely do. And again, I want you to be prepared. You're going to get one of, of two totally different responses to this from a teacher. You're going to get the one text mom got. Hey, you know what? You're, you're, you're right about that. Shit, no one else ever pointed that out. But now that you point that out, I'm wrong. That's wrong. I'm going to change that. I accept that. I should say you're going to get one of three responses. Let's be totally fair to the system, even though the system doesn't warrant it. The next one you could get would be, well, what you might not know is before this assignment was given, we had a very deep conversation with the students about what we were looking for here. And when we asked, you know, like there was defined parameters that were ignored in this answer. And if they can justify that and back that up, then either your kid didn't get it, your kid didn't care, or your kid was spacing out while it was being discussed. And that should be something you take corrective action and help the child learn how to do it properly. And then there's the most likely, I believe, scenario 
They'll tell you to shut up and go away, maybe in nicer words, but basically they'll say, that's the answer, That's I don't change rates. Well, even when you're wrong? Well, I'm not wrong, because the answer key says I'm right. And and those teachers need to be pushed to the wall with it. Well, I, we're just going to keep, we're going to have a lot of more conversation about this shit, because obviously you don't understand that you're wrong, and that makes me question all of the things that you're teaching my child that could be wrong. And I would I would lay the smack down on that one. But be prepared for it, and be prepared to do a little bit more diplomatically than I might do it on the air. You know, because that's what I was, well, you know, I've determined, this is, this is, I'm not suggesting you do this, this is what I would say. I've determined that you do not have the intellectual capability to comprehend the fact that you're wrong. That you're so indoctrinated in this that you think you're right, even though anybody with a clear understanding of the facts here would realize that this is wrong. So I'm wondering if your vice principal or your principal or someone like that is a little smarter than you, and we can go talk to them. There's a much nicer way to say that. I'm out of the nice business, though, guys. I really am. Of course, it's easy for me to say because my son's 28, so I don't have to do this anymore. Um, I had one throwdown with a teacher and a vice principal, and uh, it ended in our favor. It didn't start in our favor. It ended in our favor because I was a hard ass on it. And when you're right then you have to stand on being right. But, you, again, you must give some temperance and respect to these people trying to do a hard job in a shitty system and understand you can't just bully them into doing what you want without at least first understanding why they marked it wrong. So there could be a situation like, well, yes, but we specifically said you must pick the answer that's most correct in a multiple choice. So that could be like C could be true, but it's not as true as B. And there are tests like that. So you have to, you can't be out there, I guess you want to say, with a vendetta, like predisposed to every time your kid's wrong, they must be wrong. I kind of look at it like this, like uh, serving on a jury. If I ever end up serving on a jury, the concept of jury nullification is right up in the front of my cerebral cortex. I mean, I'm looking for the opportunity. This is why it'll never happen. I'll never get on a jury because of research and vetting and stuff. But, you know, if, 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 the, the, the charge is... This man grew 27 pot plants in his, his bedroom, and he was growing pot plants and cutting up into little pieces and selling them to his friends. Okay, I'll be on that jury, and you can present all the evidence you want. The guy can sit there and go, I did it. Uh, I'm pleading guilty here. Yeah, I totally grew those plants. And I'll be like, not guilty. Not guilty. Why? Because I don't believe that should be a crime. So as a juror, I have a right to nullify what I see as an unjust law. That's an absolute constitutional right in our system of government and our system of justice. And anybody that tells you that you do not have that right is either lying or stupid. Okay? Let be fair. Lying or ignorant. A judge that tells you that is a lying judge. There's another word I'd like to use there with an F. He's a lying F. Because he knows. Anybody that's a judge knows. To be a judge, you have to know. You can't be that willfully ignorant. You know, but you want to hide it. You want to lie and intimidate and threaten. But of course, in a jury, the juror has the right to vote his conscience, which includes total facts, which, do I believe this is a crime in the first place? But, I'm not going to be sitting there and going, okay, I get selected for a jury, and it turns out, well, what did this guy, what is this guy accused of doing? Well, he's accused of uh, murdering six people. Not accidentally, like he went in with an axe and chopped their heads off while they slept. 
okay, well, if he's guilty, he's screwed. Because even though I'm not for the state, I will send him to whatever apparatus is available. I'll vote guilty on that shit. He can get the death penalty or spend the rest of his life in prison. I don't care if I believe he did it. So I'll go from right there from going, I don't really care whether he did it or not, to now, now my job as a juror is to care whether he did it or not. That's how you have to be with your interactions with our educators. You can't just presuppose because your kid says they're right that they're right and that the teacher's just wrong or intentionally wrong. You can't. It's not fair. So I just wanted to put that caveat on it. Next question. I love this question. This is like, because I own all of these and I'm so passionate about cooking outdoors. I love this question. It says, Chris says, what kind of smoker should I buy? Details. I'm currently just have a gas grill, but I want to get into smoking. I've never used a smoker before. I'm considering three options. The Weber kettle grill with the slow and sear. I like this option because it would also give me a charcoal grill if I didn't want to use my gas and ability to smoke. Two, traditional sidebox smoker would be the cheapest option. Want wah I'll get to that in a second, okay, but that's a want wah Option three, Bradley Smoker. I like this because it seems more set it and forget it compared to the other methods. I believe the learning curve for the Bradley would be less than the other options. I think you own or have owned all three options, and your advice before making a purchase would be appreciated. Okay, so Chris in Cincinnati. The choice is yours. I'm going to try to help you make this choice. I'm going to start out with the want-want. Option two, traditional sidebox smoker would be the cheapest option. Bradley smokers are around 300 bucks for the analog version, I think, in that range. A Weber kettle grill is 150 bucks for the premium model, which I would definitely spend the extra 50 bucks on. And a uh, slow and sear would be about 100 bucks, so 250 bucks there. If you're looking at a sidebox smoker that's under 250 bucks, you are looking at the wrong sidebox smoker. I have a new Bronfel smoker. I think it was around 450, 500 bucks at Academy Sports and Outdoors. Here's my rule for sidebox smokers. If you could pick it up by yourself and put it in the back of a pickup truck without blowing your nuts out, you do not have the right sidebox smoker. It should be heavy enough that at least two people are required to get it into a back of a pickup truck and you'd really rather have three or four. Or it's not built out of heavy enough material to be useful as a sidebox smoker. Okay? I think mine took me and three guys from the store, and that made it real easy. And then I had to like call somebody to get it out of the truck so I didn't break anything, get like me when I was taking it back out of the truck when I got it home. Okay? So my my view is all of these are gonna cost somewhere within a couple hundred bucks of each other, and probably the most expensive if you buy a good one, is going to be a traditional sidebox smoker. Uh, but it's going to be right in there with the Bradley. So your cheapest option is going to be the Weber. I'm going to start with the Weber. I got the Slow and Sear about almost a year ago now. I've used the Slow and Sear and the Smokinator both. And when I first got the Slow and Sear, my, my direct quote was, I think it curb stomps the Smokinator. So if you don't know what curb stomping is, it's pretty vicious. A curb stomp is when you beat a guy's butt, right, you beat his ass, and you put his teeth on a curb and you kick him in the back of the head. I don't recommend you do that to anybody. That's what curb stomp means, though, okay? Knock their teeth out on the curb with the back of your heel. Uh, that's, that's pretty much a definitive, this thing kicks this other thing's ass, all right? Um, after using it a lot, I would say for smoking in the Weber kettle, the Smokinator is less expensive and does a better job because it is easier to hold the temperature consistently at 250 degrees and not have it running up to higher temperatures on you. 
It's not that the Smokinator or the Slow and Sear won't do that for you. It won't do it as easily. It'll get away from you more frequently. And once it gets away from you, it's very hard to rein it back in. And so I actually would tell you that from, the, from my perspective, out of the three, based on the fact that you like the idea of being able to grill with charcoal as well, for flexibility and, and being able to do other things in the future, I would go with the Weber Kettle. And the Smokinator, which I believe is about $60. Bucks. Let me check that right now to make sure that I'm giving you right information. Okay, so Smokinator is $80 bucks with shipping. $69.95 plus $10 shipping. You might be able to find it for less elsewhere. I will put it in the show notes. They make one um, that comes with a hover grill kit that's like an extra $20. Bucks. Don't buy that. If you, if you don't, just don't buy it. If you want a hover grill, that's basically a great with some legs on it. You can buy those for ten bucks. So don't don't do that. Um, so the Smokinator, seventy bucks plus the uh, Weber kettle grill for one hundred and fifty bucks. You get two hundred twenty bucks there, and, and I, I think you would have a, a really great start to smoking if you follow the instructions with the Smokinator. You're not going to have trouble holding the temperatures. If you watch some of my videos, you'll see me, you know, hours into a cook with the camera pointing right at the thermometer on the top of the kettle, pegged to 250 degrees like somebody put it there with a screw gun, uh, saying, where have we seen this before? And so I think that as somebody that would be new to smoking, uh, that would want a great deal of control, and maybe not want to spend a, a huge amount of money, uh, that would be the way to go. When it comes to a sidebox smoker, um, you know, I mine's made by a company called New Braunfels, and I think they make a great smoker. When I look on Amazon, you know, sh shockingly enough, I don't see a good sidebox smoker on Amazon. Why? Because I think shipping would kill you. I think if you're going to go into the world of a sidebox smoke, smoker, um, you, you need to go the route of picking one up locally and getting some guys with some, some ass to them to help you get it on and off a vehicle or have it delivered. If you want to see what not to buy, and this might be what you've done, uh, I just put sidebox smoker on Amazon. The, the first one that comes up that's actually a smoker uh, is a Char Griller 1224 Pro 830 square inch charcoal grill with side fire box. This is exactly what not to buy. Do not buy a cheaply made, lightweight sidebox smoker. The firebox in a smoker gets incredibly hot, and these cheap ones will burn out in a couple seasons. Um, what will happen is the first time you fire it up, the paint will just incinerate off the firebox. It will be completely unprotected. You'll keep spraying that high-temperature black spray paint from Home Depot on it, and it will just keep peeling right back off. You will never get ahead of it, and it will eventually burn the bottom or the back out of the box. It will never hold temperatures really consistently for you uh, because it doesn't have a thermal mass, and it's just a bad investment. So if you're going to buy a sidebox smoker, you're looking at the $300 plus range, which will put it up as expensive or more expensive than your other options. And you're probably looking, if I'm going to recommend it, in the four to $500 range. Now, again, the one that I have is made by a company called New Braunfels. Uh, and, and they are selling right now at Academy for around 200 bucks. So when I first started researching this for you, I thought, you know, well, I was wrong. My, maybe you should just go get one of these. When I started reading the reviews on them, um, there's a lot of people with good reviews that are like, yeah, I've had this smoker for 20 years, and it's great. And all the poor reviews are people that are buying it now. And it seems like something with New Braunfels has kind of gone downhill with quality from what I can tell. 
From now, mine's about six years old. I like it, and it, it's it's had plenty of workout, and it is a heavy ass smoker. But looking at the photo on Academy's website of the exact model I have, I can tell you there's been some design changes to it. Uh, so it's not the same as it ever was, so to say. So. Uh, again, though, I'm looking for something really heavy-duty when it comes to a sidebox smoker. Kind of, I would say, as the uh, the quality entry-level product that I would recommend today if I was buying a new one. It's made by a company called Old Country Barbecue, and it would be the Pecos smoker. They sell for about 400 bucks. So that's kind of where I'd steer you if you're going to go in there. And the funny thing is, the funny thing is, when I look at this, it looks like mine. It looks like my old New Braunfels one. My very, I mean, down to every single feature where everything is, the dimensions, it looks like the pattern that, 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 uh, that New Braunfels used to do. The wheels, it, it looks like a clone. And uh, the way the firebox works, the oversized nature of the firebox, they give a lot of space in there, the way the grates slide in it all out, it looks like what I own. And it's about 400 bucks, And that's what I remember paying for mine. So I don't know if there's some weird branding change thing going on in there or whatever, but I'm going to tell you that's what I would look to if I was going to go to a sidebox smoker. With the Bradley, you have two choices. On the Bradley, you have either the analog, which means there's a little dial, and you just kind of set it higher or lower until you get the temperature you want, or you have the digital option. So on the Bradley, you have a couple different options. Um, the, the analog, again, runs about $220 with free shipping. Uh, the four rack um, digital, where you set the temperature with a digital setting, uh, runs for three thirty eight. You'd be real tempted to look to the because you got a four rack, right? You get a six rack digital one for two ninety nine for about forty bucks less than the four rack digital one, and, and then you're only what sixty dollars more than the analog one, like I own. Why wouldn't I recommend that? Well, let me read you the dimensions. Um, The dimensions of the uh, four rack uh, digital are fourteen fourteen thirty one, and the, uh, the 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 six rack digital are fifteen eleven and a half thirty three. So it's decidedly more narrow to give you, and it, it ain't much higher. They just put more shelves in there, and it, and it actually is more cramped, in my opinion. Uh, there is a little bit of dimensional difference, but the actual internal dimensions are about the same between the digital 4-rack and the analog 4-rack, I guess I would call it. For me, uh, $120 to have a digital temperature setting that really ain't like set the number, push the button, and it actually goes there. It tries to go there. Um, what worth it. Little rheostats work great. They've been around for 100 years because they work. You know, and you set that thing and you learn kind of, well, right about there is going to get me the temperature I'm looking for. And you learn to use it. It's really easy. And so I would recommend out of the Bradley that you go with the analog $220 model. I have links to all of these things for you to take a look at in the show notes, including the stuff over on Academy, uh, the, uh, the, 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 the side box I would recommend at Academy. This thing is heavy duty, folks. It really is. Now, making the decision, I would, I would, I would go toward the Weber. Because it does so much more than smoke. And with a smokinator, it does a really good job of smoking. The trade-off. You know, one full-size brisket is a little bit tight on the Weber. So if you're going to be smoking full briskets, you, you might want to look then to the Bradley, because then you just cut your brisket in half and put a half on each shelf, and you still got room for some sausage or some other things. 
um, or you're just going to have to accept limitations to how much you can fit on there, or then head back over to the sidebox smoker. A lot of people would point out that you can grill on a sidebox smoker. You can. I've not really ever been that enamored with. I'll do it because you got a huge grill surface, but it's not really designed for that. So it's a little bit of a pain in the ass to clean it out. Um, the side box will serve as a small grill, but it's really not ideal in my opinion either. It's really built for the purpose of side box smoking. That's, that's what it's for. So I'd go to the, the, the Weber, and that will allow you to do all kinds of other things. You know, make beer can chickens and stuff like that uh, that you would not be probably doing with your other two. If you, if you decided, I want a dedicated smoker. And I want something that's actually because is the is the Weber with the smokeinator as good a smoker as the Bradley or the Sidebox? The answer is no. It's good. It's not as good. So now you're down to the Sidebox or the Bradley. I would totally go with the Bradley. And, and the only way that I would change that is if you're going to be doing a large amount of food often, because the only time that I use that Sidebox smoker anymore after spending all that money on it. Is like I'm getting ready for a workshop and I'm going to smoke two briskets and four pork, pork shoulders. That's when I use it. And I, a lot of times I don't even do it then. I can fit three pork shoulders in the Bradley. I can fit more. I think I have a video where I put four of them in there. And I finish them in the oven and they come out fantastic that way. So unless I'm doing an awful lot, it, it, it's a lot more work. You know, you take the Bradley, it comes with these little discs. You take your little wood discs, you stick them in your little chute. You push a button, you set it, you forget it, and it comes out fantastic. In all of them, I can finish a piece of meat till it will melt in your mouth on the Weber. I can do it in the Bradley, which is really actually very easy to do. You just keep turning down the temperature as you as you get more and more climb out of it until you get to a stasis at where you want to be, and you just leave it there till it's done. Um, or I can do it on a side box. But I have become such a fan of the Texas Cheat over the years, which is you get that meat, to about 160 degrees where you hit the stall on smoking, you wrap it up tightly in foil, you set your oven for 225 degrees and throw it in there till the internal temperature is about 195 degrees. And you'll smack your mama, it's so good. And 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 that's what I would that's where I would send you with all of them, especially as you're learning. Especially as you're learning and you're refining your skills and you're refining your techniques, but ranking them in order as I would recommend them to you as a new person that wants flexibility Uh, and ease of use. Weber with a smokinator, not the slow and sear, Bradley Analog, Sidebox. And that's actually going to be about how they price out, too. Um, you know, your, your Bradley and your, your Weber with a smokinator are about the same price, but I don't look at it that way. I look at you have a completely functioning grill, and then for 80 bucks you get a smoker. Right? That's, that's the way I look at that. So, um, I, I just can't say enough good things about the Weber kettle, and that, that's why I'm going to steer you that way. Let's take another one. Okay, so this next one comes to me from some guy named John, and I'm not calling him that. That's how he signed his thing. And it's about the concept of a library of things. This is actually in Toronto, and it's in conjunction with a makerspace. Let me read the article to you, and I'll talk a little bit about where I see things like this going. And the overall trend here is more important than the thing here, I think. Says anyone living in cramped confines of a city apartment knows the pain of not having enough space. That's nowhere to put your ping pong table you've always wanted. Your bike is hanging on the wall and you've already stepped into kids' Legos twice this week. 
Storage is expensive. Every new possession, hobby, project costs more money and precious square footage. The Sharing Depot, Toronto's, fir Toronto's first library of things, helps space-starved urbanites cut costs and clutter without giving up access to stuff they love, a sort of zip car for the little things. The Sharing Depot, which opened earlier this year, lets members borrow items like camping gear, sports equipment, toys, and garden tools. Members between, pay between $50 and $100 Canadian annually. The higher the level of membership, the longer you can keep an item. When I reached Sharing Depot, co-founder Ryan Dummett on the phone, the storefront is busy and loud. Patrons can browse an extensive inventory online or search the depot's crowded shelves in person. Skilled workshops and swap meets keep shares, in, shares engaged, and a volunteer program provides free membership in exchange for working a few shifts per month. You meet a lot of interesting people, Diamond says earnestly, of the, growing, of the depot's growing community. Before the startup project, Diamond and co-founder Lawrence Alvarez, a community activist, polled local Torontonians, Torontonians, I didn't know that was a thing, to find out what items people needed occasionally but didn't have room for at home or found too expensive to buy outright. The most popular items were camping gear, toys, party supplies, those kinds of things, Diamond said. So we said, okay, let's do a crowdfunding to see if people want to put their money where their mouth is. The project's Indiegogo campaign raised more than $30,000, allowing the Sharing Depot to build out its storefront space, pay a few months' rent, and acquire some basic inventory. Diamond says the depot is currently dependent on grants for about 20% of its funding, but he hopes membership fees can sustain the operation going forward. Now that they're set up, most of the new items come in via donation. We have a wish list from people who come in and request things, Diamond says. So, for example, we didn't have a really great sewing machine's, But it was requested, so we did that. Diamond recently heard from someone calling to ask if they had a paper shredder. I was like, yeah, you know, actually, that's a good request. I don't have one, Diamond tells me. And then literally within an hour of hanging up on this person and disappointing them, someone came in and dropped off two paper shredders. While loaning out chop saws, folding chairs, and chocolate fondue fountains may not sound like a very direct way to change the world, the ethos of the Sharing Depot stat taps into deeper economic and environmental issues for Diamond. The former accountant walked away from a finance career for more meaningful pursuits in 2009, after he began to question the sustainability of modern economies and monetary systems. Generally, the largest impact that an individual makes, though, through the products they consume. We have to find a way to consume less if we care about the environment, if we want to live here for many generations. The Sharing Depot has its roots in an Institute for Resource-Based Economy, a nonprofit started in 2011 to promote the sharing economy and provide a transition solution for our planetary crisis. Diamond and Alvarez are among the group's founders. The Institute helped, held workshops on a debt-based currency and disruptive technologies hosted by educational talks and eventually settled into its biggest project, the Toronto Tool Library. It was a great concept. A single a sim, single home repair project could require 15 different tools, but here you could borrow the gear you needed to put up those shelves or retile your bathroom and then just return it when you were all done. While tool libraries have been around since the 70s in Ohio, Washington State, and Berkeley, California, Toronto, already home to a particularly robust library culture, didn't have one yet. Diamond, Alvarez, and their peers had little trouble building partnerships and opening up new facilities. The Toronto Tool Library has since grown to four locations. 
Quickly, it became a very talked-about issue in Toronto, Diamond tells me, who were loving it. People who were looking for a system change. People who were looking to reduce consumption. Just as like an alternative idea of how a society could function. But he says, our goal was never to just do tools. Our goal was always to connect these issues on a larger scale. And now Diamond has been getting lending out toys, sewing machines, and donated paper shredders. The popularity of the tool library allowed it to spin off the Sharing Depot this year. Um, you can read the last little bit of the article if you want to, but I, I think you get the point. Like, okay, you're going to go camping, so you need some sleeping bags. So a lot of people, the first time they ever go camping, they go out and buy sleeping bags. Well, how often are you going to use them? I mean, personally, I camp two or three times a year, and I take my gear. And I'm honestly going to tell you, I'm probably not going to borrow a sleeping bag. But I can see other people would. And I, I can see other things that you might borrow. Um, we're different than a lot of people because we run events here and things like that. So we have tons of tables and stuff like that. But, I mean, folding tables would be a perfect example. You buy a folding table, it sits in the garage all year. If you set it up in the garage, it gets flat surface syndrome and all kinds of crap gets put on it. So you don't want to do that. And it just takes up space and you don't use it. But if you needed one for a day or two, why not borrow one? And kind of a membership fee, like a gym membership, like a subscription service. What does this sound like that we just covered last week? A subscription, so this is, you know, low-end consumer goods uh, or a drill, an electric drill or something like that. But we just talked about doing this with cars. So what's the pattern? What's the pattern that I've been talking about lately that we see here? Access over ownership. You know, the world's going to end if we don't all share stuff is the, the political undertone here. Throw that out. It doesn't really matter. The, the, the society is not going to change because we're using too much plastic. That's not going to be the impetus to change society. It just isn't. And and we're we're not running out of energy. We're going to have energy for a long time. That's all. That's all mythological. But the reality is, we've gotten into such a culture of stuff that most people have more stuff than they want. And I bet most of you have had this conversation with yourself, self. Look at all this stuff. There's a plenty of that stuff I don't use very often, and I should get rid of it. And then when you start going through it, you're like, but I use that a couple times a year. If you could get rid of it, but go get it back whenever you needed it, would you? And that's how this place is really working. Most of the stuff isn't stuff they're going out and buying, like a traditional library. Somebody requests a book, so the library uses its budget to buy it. People are giving it to them. Oh, I have these two extra shredders. I mean, start looking at it from a much more community aspect. So let's say one of these places was just down the road from me. We have a paper shredder. We use it about three or four times a year. We get up to enough garbage that needs to be shredded, it all goes through the shredder. Do we really need that occupying space in my wife's office? No. Am I going to give it away? No, because I need it two or three times a year. But what if I could give it to somebody, and when I needed it, I could just pick it up, or she could just pick it up. Like, if it was right next to our mailbox place, and she goes a couple times a week anyway, and, hey, it's about time to shred all this waste. Okay, great. Pick it up, bring it home, shred it, we compost it, we're good to go. And it goes back. Well, I'd give it away tomorrow. And that's the genius here, is to tie in the concept, to get people to supply the things that are useful. And this is why this is better than something like Goodwill. Because let's say I bought a brand-new paper shredder that was better than my old one that still works. What am I going to do? I'm not going to go to the pawn shop and try to sell a $35, $40 paper shredder. They don't want it. I'm not going to get anything for it. 
I'm not going to have a freaking garage sale once a year to make $100. Bucks. I, I would rather shoot myself in the face with a bazooka than have a garage sale once a year to make $100. Bucks. I just I am not doing it. So what am I going to do with it? I'm going to take it to Goodwill, and I'm going to write it off on my taxes. That's what I'm going to do. They're going to sell it to somebody, and it's going to occupy space again. But if there was a place like a Goodwill that I could drop it off, and then it would be used by the community, even if I don't get a tax deduction, which I probably wouldn't in that case, I would take it there instead. Because now I know it's accessible and available to me. I might even say, well, I need this thing. And if I have a good relationship with this lending library type organization, call them up and say, hey, do you have one of these? No. Hey, well, you know, I'm probably one of your guys that's more involved with this because it's convenient and I believe in what you're doing than financial need. Um, I could buy one of these and I'm going to need it for like a week. Would you want to put it in inventory? I'll just give it to you when I'm done with it. As long as I know I can, I can borrow it back. Would you be interested in that? Yeah. Right? I mean, this is brilliance. And here's the thing about this. I bet you anybody could do this. I bet you could do this if this excites you. I bet even though there are some department of making you sad problems with this, if you stay out of food and things that you put into your body and just into physical goods, that something like this could be installed about anywhere in America. And I don't think you have to be in a major market for this to work. I actually think second, third, fourth tier towns and cities, you know, places with 10,000 people in them, that are lower income demographic, this is fantastic for. It might take a little bit to get people excited about it. But there are so many places where, you know, and, and here's the other thing, though. You have to understand, like, the negative as to why this is a thing. Why wasn't this a thing in 1965 or 1980 in smaller towns, 10,000, 20,000, 30,000 person towns? Why? Because everybody knew so many other people by first name. If you needed a chainsaw and you didn't own one, somebody would lend you one. So why would you pay some company 100 bucks a year to be able to borrow something you can borrow from your next-door neighbor for free? And that's why it's working, and the, the bigger the city, the better it's working. It's not so much that the need is different, it's that the solution is different. There is not this network of people anymore. But this is better, because this is a nice way to hold things accountable. You know what sucks? Loaning your chainsaw to somebody... And like six months go by and you don't have your chainsaw back yet and you've mentioned it and they forgot it the last four times they came over and they're not really being a dick about it and they're just forgetful and they've used it and there's nothing wrong with it. At least you think there's nothing wrong with it, but is it sitting there with fuel in it, turned on its side with the stuff oozing out? Did they jack your chain up? Where is your chainsaw? I'm going to need it next week. Where's my chainsaw? Now it won't run because it's not been maintained for six. You see what I'm saying? Like, it creates a third-party level of accountability for exchange. And I think you really want to take this thing up a notch, you start taking your membership fees in cryptocurrency. Why does that matter? Because now it's another big middle finger to the state and its systems and to the oligarchy and their systems. It says everybody needs one of these. No, we just need enough of these that everybody has access to one of these. We don't use your money. We don't use your distribution system. We take care of ourselves. We look after ourselves, F you. And I think you'll see more and more of this. But the bigger story here is the pattern. You keep hearing me say these words. You're going to only hear it more as we go into the future. Access over ownership. If it's collectively bartered out for time, so to say, and something breaks or wears out and is disposed of, only one of those items has to be replaced against the totality of 
of individuals. See, this is actually the, the selling point of socialism. But socialism always ends in death and destruction and horrors and misery. It always does. It always has. It always will. There's no uh, socialist utopia in Scandinavia. In many ways, those of you that believe that, we are more socialists than they are at this point in many ways. If you, if you, especially if you take healthcare out of the equation. It's, it's ridiculous the lie that's been sold to people. Socialism always ends in misery. But this is what the socialist sells, that more people cooperating together can get more things done than individuals. I think that's self-evident. We don't need a state to do that. And the difference here is, if I don't want anything to do with this, I don't have to have anything to do with it. If I don't like the way it's being run, I can go set my own up. If I think, well, you're only covering this stuff, and I think this should be covered too, I don't force it in you. I go create one that does it the way that I think it should be done and see if it works. And the people all you know, participate on a voluntary basis. And some people will give more. Again, I would be the guy that would occasionally buy something for a couple hundred bucks, use it for a week, and donate it because I don't want the service to go away. And there's other people that go, I would love to do that, but I can't afford to. Well, it works for us. It works for us both. And we both get to determine for ourselves how we participate. This is brilliant. This is absolutely brilliant. Uh, some guy named John, thanks for sending it in. And I'm telling you, I, th I see this becoming a thing across the world, honestly. Let's take another one. So this next one, I'm, I'm not going to read the article. I'm just going to read what another guy named John had to say. This this one spells his name J-O-N instead of J-O-H-N. I'm John by birth, by the way, guys. My slave name is John, and my John has an H in it, which is the proper way to spell John. I'm just saying. Anyway, John, you should put an H in your name. I'm kidding, sort of. Anyway, um, John sends the following. Uh, the crappiest place on earth. Interesting fluff piece that hides the dependency on the state. Daily Mail article about Disneyland. Here's what he says. Hi, Jack. I found this article in my feed. And while it is a cute little piece of fluff, it shows just how crazy the system is and how dependent we have become on the state. Basically, the story is about how a bunch of geese flew over Disneyland. And as they did, they did what geese normally do. But rather than just laugh it off and arrange a cleanup, And complimentary pass for the guests. The police, fire department, hazmat crew were all called to deal with a bunch of goose poo. And to make matters work, the police department used it to promote the world via, to the world via Twitter just how good they are and that no crime was committed, effectively creating news where there was no news needed to be reported. When did we become so hopelessly addicted to helplessness? Love the show, Jack. Glad to see that there are a few people left with some common sense. John. Okay, so John sent a link. to I put the link in the article. You can read it if you want to. But basically, that's what happened. A bunch of geese flew over. About 16 people got shit on. And uh, instead of just saying, you know, everybody go to a, go take care of yourself, and if you got shit on, let us know. We'll give you a free ride on the Matterhorn or whatever. No, nope, they called a hazmat team in. They had a special cleanup area set up so you could go get cleaned up if you got a, a grease turd on you. And a hazmat team. A hazmat team for bird shit. Now, I know what some of you will say. Jack, in today's litigious society, Disney was worried about being sued and they had to do these things. I don't disagree. But that is the point. That is the point, that people actually would expect this and people would use this in a predatory system to sue Disney over, I got sick because of goose shit on me. As though you couldn't have been anywhere else and been shit on by a goose. As though Disney's responsible for gooses shitting out of the air onto your head. This makes me think when I was a kid. I grew up in Jacksonville, Florida for a part of my childhood. And it was a field trip from school. 
and we were at a museum. I don't remember what the whole deal was. I was probably in like, I want to say like sixth grade, like in that age bracket. And it was like a part like where we've been to the museum and we don't have to get on the buses yet. And there was like a big park outside of the museum. It was actually like two museums, if I remember right. There's a big park in between them. And we're pretty close to the river and the ocean, so there's seagulls around. And I remember watching this one kid running. And I don't know why he was running there playing tag. I just remember I locked it. I could tell something in my heart and soul told me something cool was about to happen. And I just stopped my little sixth grade self and I looked and I saw the seagulls flying around. And this kid's running like directly under a seagull that's like tracking him like his course and speed, like the Enterprise tracking an alien ship. And I see it come. A big white seagull shit comes dropping out of this bird's ass and he's got the lead time perfect. And it hits this kid square in the forehead. And like seagull shit just rips across his face. And you know what he did? He was a sixth grader. He started crying. Well, the teacher comes over to him and she's trying not to laugh. And there's like a fountain. She walks him over the fountain, right? And she like, she gets a rag and she sticks it in the water of the fountain. She hands it to him. He like wipes his face off. And he dries his face with his hands. And she goes, are you okay? He goes, yeah. She goes, go back and play. And he goes back and plays. But 16 people get shit on, probably mostly adults at Disneyland. And we call in a hazmat crew. Our society is screwed. If, I mean, here's my question for you when we have stuff like this. We have to have a public service warning because people are too stupid to cut an avocado. We need a hazmat team because a freaking goose craps on somebody. A kid builds a freaking clock without a body and it's a bomb, according to the school district. I know that's years ago. I'm just kind of showing you a pattern of how people react to everything now. Some kid... You know, gives his burrito to another kid and gets suspended for sharing food in school, right? Some kid eats a Pop-Tart into the shape of a gun and gets suspended under zero intelligence policy. Was it zero tolerance? No, zero intelligence policy. Uh, things like this. Like, what are we going to do when, not if, when we have a real problem? When we actually have to deal with an actual problem, and this is what people have become accustomed to. In Texas, several years ago, I think five years ago now, I, I reported on a situation where there's this ditch. I mean, it's like a, like a ditch you played in when you were a kid. Like one of these ditches, like big, big sidewalls, it's grass, and the bottom is paved concrete. It's about four inches deep. And they put some like concrete rocks, basically, across it like a weir. So when the water's running, if you want to cross the ditch, you can walk across the rocks. And the children were, were going through the ditch when it rained. And they, they showed this little girl. She was like six years, maybe seven years old. And she's like skipping and hopping. It was cute. She was skipping and hopping. And the parents were all worried. One of these kids is going to wipe out and get seriously hurt. We need a bridge. We need a bridge. Uh, we need a bridge. And a bridge across this ditch was going to cost a million dollars because it was in the floodplain and the government said the ditch had to be a, the the bridge had to be a certain way but it also encompassed three different HOAs had a say so in it so they all had certain things they wanted the bridge to do and it was going to cost a million dollars to build a, a a bridge you know across something about the size of a bedroom when like two guys could run down to Home Depot for a couple hundred bucks of materials in about 10 minutes of time And, and build this bridge for a couple hundred bucks. 
Somebody would have done it for, but it, but the HOAs want it to be this way, and the people said, if it's a flood, who cares if it's a flood? It's just a freaking, it's not going to cause a problem. You can build a bridge so that it's very minimal about interference there. If you get up to the point where that bridge is underwater, you got other flood problems. This was ridiculous. But what really made it a million dollars was the HOAs because they're worried about their housing values. But it all started because people were worried that kids might fall four inches onto a slippery rock. So as stupid as the solution was, the dumber thing was the problem wasn't a problem. What are these people going to do when they have an actual problem? These even aren't, like people say, first world problems. These aren't first world problems. These are fictional world problems. These people live in a world of fiction. Like this, this is a non-reality based environment these people are living in. That would you think your problem is first world problem is you know ordered my coffee today and damn it if it wasn't cold when I got it. Well, you paid for something. You expected it to be hot. It came out cold, and you were already so now you're you're, you're unhappy with the result of something. It's not really important, but it's a first world problem. You wanted hot, you got cold, right? That's that. At least it's real. Kids skipping across a ditch being a problem is not a problem. Somebody being shit on by a goose, it's not a problem. Go to the bathroom, wash yourself off, go on with your freaking life. You know, if you can get a free extra day of tickets out of it, God bless you. Go ahead and get that from the idiots that give it to you or whatever. But in reality, like you got shit on by a goose, it's not a problem. Hazmat team, really. Really, again, this is why you have to be prepared in all ways. Emergency preparedness, stored food, water, energy, all that stuff, uh, health, sanitation, security, but also lifestyle design, lifestyle planning, not being deeply in debt, all of the things we talk. This is why you have to be prepared because these are the people that make up the majority of people around you. What are they going to do when there's a real problem? They're going to lose their shit. They're going to go nuts. They're going to go nuts. And I like to quote one of my favorite poems right now by Rudyard Kipling. The first lines of that song are, If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blame it all, blaming it on you. If you can trust yourself when all men doubt you, but make allowance for their doubting too. Right? That's the beginning of that. And if you can keep your head when everybody's losing their shit, is basically what he's saying, then you, can, you have a chance. In fact, what that, what that poem ends with is if you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run, yours is the earth and everything that's in it, and which is more, You'll be a man, my son. I this is something I I know that poem because I had to memorize this in high in, in like grade school I think it was. This is what we used to teach our kids. Now we teach our kids if you get shit on by a goose, call a hazmat team. I mean, the contrast there. But the reason we prepare is because when everybody does lose their minds, if you're calm, it's the greatest opportunities that you'll ever be presented with in your life. When everybody's screaming for a solution, they're open to a solution. You might be the one to provide it. When everybody's making mistakes, it becomes really obvious what the mistakes are. And when you can identify the mistakes with pattern recognition, it becomes real, ID, real easy to ID what the right thing to do is. In general, what everybody's doing, you should probably do something a little bit different than that. 
Just saying. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed today's show. And uh, I really uh, I like doing these uh, listener feedback shows a lot because it lets me talk to all these different subjects that you guys bring into me. And uh, I want you to keep sending me the stuff. Remember, TSPC in the subject line, and then info for Jack, comment for Jack, question for Jack. Jack, you're an idiot. Whatever you want to tell me. And then you know, give me your idea or your question in one sentence. Hit the return key. Give me your details. Give me your link, what have you, and you'll be more likely to get through the screening. If you like the show and you want us to always be here and you want to support the work we do, one way to do that is do your online shopping at tspaz.com. You go to tspaz.com whenever you're going to shop online and uh, check things there first. You can get on tspaz.com. You can get a link. You go over to Amazon, and you can see the deals of the day. You can do your shopping from there. No matter what you're going to buy on Amazon, you can go that route. Or you can take a look at the stuff that we're reviewing whenever you go to tspaz.com. Today I have a product that fit really well with the question on the Weber grill today. Um, if you buy the Weber kettle grill, the, one of the accessories you'll always see operate, uh, offered from Weber to go with it uh, are these uh, charcoal baskets. And they're two little kind of half round shaped uh, trapezoidal, inverse trapezoidal things, triangular, semi, I don't know what shape you would call this, a triangle without a point. Um, baskets and with the little breather holes and you put charcoal in them and it holds charcoal in a spot and you can either put them all the way out to the sides creating two hot zones on your sides and a cool zone in the center or put them together and make a round hot zone in the center with your cool zones out on the side really really cool the problem with them is they're, they're junk Weber makes some really good stuff both in accessories and grills they are if you were going to buy a high end gas grill I'd say start looking at the Genesis and up uh, I mean they just I love the kettle. I love so many things that they do. Their charcoal baskets are an embarrassment. They're not made out of it, but they feel like they're made out of like double, you know, two, two layers of aluminum can or something. They're just chintzy as shit. And, uh, but they do work, and I had a set, and I wore them out pretty damn good. And I was like, I really need to get another set. I've been using my slow and sear instead. And uh, it's like a well, single basket, and that's not really ideal. And... Uh, Oh, I just don't want to spend another 15 bucks on something I know I'm going to burn out in two years. So I was looking around for an option. I found this company called Quality Grill Parts, and they make a heavy-duty stainless steel charcoal basket set for the Weber Kettle Grill. It's made out of 302 stainless steel. These things are heavy. I mean, you could beat somebody pretty damn good with one of them without putting a dent in it. You'd probably put a dent in their head. Um, really awesome. The bad news, they cost twice as much as the Weber ones. The good news, the Weber ones are 15 bucks, so they're only 30 bucks. Uh, the better news is, I would say they're three to four times better for only twice the money more. That's a win in the value ratio. Uh, really great stuff. I have a little video that goes with them. You can take a look at the write-up. Uh, I'm going to be kind of going through a lot of the accessories for the Weber kettle. I've decided there's quite a few of the stuff now that I've got the barbecue grate to go with that. This was kind of my first step, having something to once again get those coals highly controlled underneath that center position. So probably once a week for the next month or so, I'll have something for grilling or the kettle grill specifically. But to me, the grate that I reviewed last week with the centerpiece that comes out with the heavy-duty stainless steel and these, uh, these, grill, uh, these uh, charcoal holders are the two best upgrades you can do to your kettle because you can smoke with these. I'll be doing a video soon showing you how to smoke with these. The Smokinator is better, but you can smoke with these. You definitely can. And you can do a lot of roasting and things, cool stuff. So check them out and, and check out the reviews. They have 71 reviews, or 72 reviews. 
95% of the reviews on this product are five-star. 95%. Now, understand something. When you look at grill accessories, there's a lot of people buying grilling accessories that don't know what they're doing. To get 95% of people to agree that something is as good as it can be is stellar. I checked them out on Fake Spot. The grade they got was an A. So it is a damn fine product, and you can always support us again, not just by checking out the item of the day, but whenever you do your online shopping, just go to tspaz.com before you, you make any other decisions. And that's a great way to, uh, to help us out and support us without it actually costing you any more money because you're going to spend that money anyway. With that, let's talk about the song of the day today. Um, this is a song I'd never heard before. I bet a lot of you have, though. It's by a, a band called Theory of a Dead Man, and the song is called World War Me. Um, not really my style of music anymore, I'll tell you. And that's why it's good to have John Adam doing this, because I'll bring you certain songs that maybe I wouldn't choose myself that some of you will really like, and some of you go, that song sucks, and you'll, you'll cut it short. It's okay. It's okay. Because I'm sure that happens when I play, like, this is the most awesome song ever, and somebody's like, this song sucks, Jack. Because music's very subjective, right? But I do kind of like it. This is music that, like, 22-year-old Jack Spear could listen to. I mean, I, I, I love this kind of style of music about that time in my life. Um, 18-year-old, 19-year-old, 17-year-old Jack, man. This was, this was being cranked in a Pontiac Grand Prix, man. I'm telling you, when I was a kid. Uh, not this song, but this type of music. So I'm not putting it down. I'm just saying it's going to be different than what you're usually to, to hear. But I, I did kind of dig the lyrics in it. And they're, they're, they really sound like a person in the middle of depression. Here's some of them. This is World War Me. I will never find peace. I'm the only enemy. I'm the king of doubt. I fight out all on the inside. I'm the poster child of denial. There's nothing I can't hide. I'm punching holes in walls because I let them build up way too long. Sabotage. Everything I ever had, and now I'm seeing red, but there's no one else to blame but the voices in my head. This is World War Me. You might wonder, like, why did John pick this song? Because it's a very defeatist song. There's not really, there's not really an ups. It's not like at the end of it he kicks kicks the ass out of the problem. It, it kind of stays this tone the whole time. Well, would it actually? I don't know why John picked it because he didn't give me any commentary on it. He just picked it and sent it to me. But. What actually it makes me realize is that a lot of people, you know, they have this old saying, you have to hit rock bottom before you're able to fix your problems. And I think a lot of people, they are their own worst enemy. I mean, I recently did a segment uh, about investing. I said the biggest risk to your money is you. I mean, really? I mean, that's why people have, you know, complex retirement accounts so that they can't get to the money easily to create discipline for themselves since they don't have it personally. You are your own worst enemy when it comes to your money. Um, but I think so many people are their own worst enemy in, in life. You know? I, I'm i my only enemy. There's no one else to blame. I think that's that's actually one of the things that I really wish people would, would start saying more of. There's no one else to blame but me. In this case, he says the voices. I'm the only enemy. That's pretty direct. But there's no one else to blame but the voices in my head. Well, that just means it's your fault. And here's the danger when you get to that point. There's two directions that you go. The good one is, well, since I am the problem, I can enact the solution. I don't need anybody's permission. I can start making my life better every day going forward from here on out. And then there's one of my friends 
very old friends, I've had as a friend for a very long time, um, has totally destroyed his marriage, has totally destroyed his life. He has this inkling I'm watching of sort of putting it back together, but I don't think it's really going to happen. And he said to me the last time we spoke, this is all my fault. I have no one else to blame. The problem is he's right, but now he wants to punish himself. Well, if you're the one to blame, then you're the one to fix it. Those are your two choices. You can either sit around loathing yourself in self-pity, or you can let World War Me have a victory day. You know, which one's it going to be? Is the war going to be eternal to the point of mutually assured destruction, where both sides of you have a standoff, nothing good ever happens until you die? Like a cold war with yourself? Or are you going to go ahead and initiate the abort sequence on self-destruction, accept that you have caused the problem, and start start implementing your solutions? I definitely recommend the second one, folks. And I think it's very easy to identify this behavior in others, but it's often easy to not see it in ourselves. Especially when overall we're doing okay. We're doing, I'm all right, I'm okay. Are you really? Are you really? Do you, do you look in the mirror and not like what you see? It's a hard way to live. It doesn't have to be. And even if everything that's gone wrong in your life is your own fault, that's actually good news. Because that actually means you're not cursed. Nobody did it to you. You have the opportunity to change it. So step up. Declare Victory Day and World War Me for yourself. If you need a little motivation, this song... A song is the alternative. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Child